Chapter Twenty One of the Return of Doctor Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Twenty One. Craigmire Tower. Less than two hours later, Inspector Weymouth and a party of men from Scotland Yard raided the house in Museum Street. They found the stock of J. Salomon practically intact, and, in the strangely appointed rooms above, every evidence of a hasty outgoing. But of the instruments, drugs, and other laboratory paraphernalia, not one item remained. I would gladly have given my income for a year to have gained possession of the books alone, for, beyond all shadow of doubt, I knew them to contain formula calculated to revolutionize the science of medicine. Exhausted physically and mentally, and with my mind a whispering gallery of conjectures, it were needless for me to mention whom respecting, I turned in gratefully, having patched up the slight wound in my calf. I seemed scarcely to have closed my eyes when Nayland Smith was shaking me into wakefulness. "'You are probably tired out,' he said, "'but your crazy expedition of last night entitles you to no sympathy. "'Read this. There is a train in an hour. "'We will reserve a compartment, and you can resume your interrupted slumbers in a corner seat.' "'As I struggled upright in bed, rubbing my eyes sleepily, "'Smith handed me the daily telegraph, pointing to the following paragraph upon the literary page. "'Messrs. M. announced that they will publish shortly the long-delayed works of Keegan von Roon, "'the celebrated American traveller.' orientalist and psychic investigator dealing with his recent inquiries in china it will be remembered that mr van roon undertook to motor from canton to siberia last winter but met with unforeseen difficulties in the province of honan he fell into the hands of a body of fanatics and was fortunate to escape with his life his book will deal in particular with his experiences in Honan, and some sensational revelations regarding the awakening of that most mysterious race the chinese are promised for reasons of his own, he has decided to remain in England until the completion of his book, which will be published simultaneously in New York and London, and has leased Cragmire Tower, Somersetshire, in which romantic and historical residence he will collate his notes and prepare for the world a work earmarked as a classic, even before it is published. I glanced up from the paper to find Smith's eyes fixed upon me inquiringly. From what I have been able to learn, he said evenly, we should reach Seoul with a decent luck just before dusk. As he turned and quitted the room without another word, I realized in a flash the purport of our mission. I understood my friend's ominous calm, betoking suppressed excitement. The fates were with us, or so it seemed, and whereas we had not hoped to gain Seoul before sunset, as a matter of fact the autumn afternoon was in its most glorious phase as we left the little village with its old-time hostelry behind us, and set out in an easterly direction, with the Bristol Channel far away on our left and a gently sloping upland on our right. The crooked high street practically constituted the entire hamlet of Seoul, and the inn, the wagoners, was the last house in the street. Now, as we followed the ribbon of Moor Path to the top of the rise, we could stand and look back upon the way we had come, and although we had covered fully a mile of ground, it was possible to detect the sunlight gleaming now and then upon the gilt lettering of the inn sign as it swayed in the breeze. The day had been unpleasantly warm, but was relieved by this same sea-breeze, which, although but slight, had in it the tang of the broad Atlantic. Behind us, then, the footpath sloped down to Saul, unpeopled by any living thing, east and northeast swelled the monotony of the moor right out to the hazy distance where the sky began and the sea remotely lay hidden 
west fell the gentle gradient from the top of the slope which we had mounted and here as far as the eye could reach the country had an appearance suggested of a huge and dried-up lake this idea was borne out by an odd blotchiness for sometimes there would be half a mile or more of seeming moorland then a sharply defined change or so it seemed sharply defined from that bird's-eye point of view a vivid greenness marked these changes which merged into a dun-coloured smudge and again into the brilliant green then the moor would begin once more that'll be tour of glastonbury i suppose said smith suddenly peering through his field-glasses in an easterly direction and yonder unless i am greatly mistaken is a cragmire tower shading my eyes with my hand i also looked ahead and saw the place for which we were bound one of those round towers more common in ireland which some authorities have declared to be of phoenician origin ramshackle buildings clustered untidily about its base and to it a sort of tongue of that oddly venomous green which patched the lowlands shot out and seemed almost to reach the tower base the land for miles around was as flat as the palm of my hand saving certain hummocks lesser tors and irregular piles of boulders which dotted its expanse hills and uplands there were in the hazy distance forming a sort of mighty inland bay which i doubted not in some past age had been covered by the sea even in the brilliant sunlight the place had something of a mournful aspect looking like a great dried-up pool into which the children of giants had carelessly cast stones we met no living soul upon the moor with the cragmire tower but a quarter of a mile off smith paused again and raising his powerful glasses swept the visible landscape not a sign petrie he said softly yet dropping the glasses back into their case my companion began to tug at his left ear have we been overconfident he said narrowing his eyes in that speculative fashion no less than three times i have had the idea that something or someone has just dropped out of sight behind me as i focused what do you mean smith are we he glanced about him as though the vastness were peopled with listening chinamen followed silently we looked into each other's eyes each seeking for the dread which neither had named then come on petrie said smith grasping my arm and at quick march we were off again cragmire tower stood upon a very slight eminence and what had looked like a green tongue from the moorland slopes above was in fact a creek flanked by lush land which here found its way to the sea the house which we were come to visit consisted in a low two-storey building joining the ancient tower on the east with two smaller outbuildings there was a miniature kitchen garden and a few stunted fruit trees in the northwest corner the whole being surrounded by a grey stone wall the shadow of the tower fell sharply across the path which ran up almost alongside of it we were both extremely warm by reason of our long and rapid walk on that hot day and this shade should have been grateful to us in short i find it difficult to account for the unwelcome chill which i experienced at the moment that i found myself at the foot of the time-worn monument i know that we both pulled up sharply and looked at one another as though acted upon by some mutual disturbance but not a sound broke the stillness save a remote murmuring until a solitary seagull rose in the air and circled directly over the tower uttering its mournful and unmusical cry automatically to my mind sprang the lines of the poem far from all brother men in the weird of the fen with god's creatures i bide mid the birds that i ken where the winds ever dree where the hymn of the sea brings a message of peace from the ocean to me not a soul was visible about the premises there was no sound of human activity and no dog barked 
Nayland Smith drew a long breath, glanced back along the way we had come, then went on, following the wall, I beside him, until we came to the gate. It was unfastened, and we walked up the stone path through a wilderness of weeds. Four windows of the house were visible, two on the ground floor and two above. Those on the ground floor were heavily boarded up. Those above, though glazed, boasted neither blinds nor curtains. Craigmire Tower showed not the slightest evidence of tenancy. We mounted three steps and stood before a tremendously massive oaken door. An iron bell-pull, ancient and rusty, hung on the right of the door, and Smith, giving me an odd glance, seized the ring and tugged it. From somewhere within the building answered a mournful clangor, a cracked and toneless jangle which, seeming to echo through empty apartments, sought and found an exit apparently by way of one of the openings in the round tower, for it was from above our heads that the noise came to us. It died away, that eerie ringing, that clanging so dismal that it could chill my heart even then with the bright sunlight streaming down out of the blue. It awoke no other response than the mournful cry of the seagull circling over our heads. Silence fell. We looked at one another, and we were both about to express a mutual doubt when, unheralded by any unfastening of bolts or bars, the oaken door was opened, and a huge mulatto, dressed in white, stood there regarding us. I started nervously, for the apparition was so unexpected, but Nayland Smith, without evidence of surprise, thrust a card into the man's hand. "'Take my card to Mr. Van Roon, and say that I wish to see him on important business,' he directed, authoritatively. The mulatto bowed and retired. His white figure seemed to be swallowed up by the darkness within, for beyond the patch of uncarpeted floor revealed by the peeping sunlight was a barn-like place of densest shadow. I was about to speak, but Smith laid his hand upon my arm warningly, as, out from the shadows, the mulatto returned. He stood on the right of the door and bowed again. "'Be pleased to enter,' he said, in his harsh negro voice. "'Mr. Van Roon will see you.' The gladness of the sun could no longer stir me. A chill and a sense of foreboding bore me company, as beside Nayland Smith I entered Cragmire Tower." End of chapter 21 Recording by Elaine Tweddle, Stirling, Ontario